You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. All right. Well, we come to uh, the Shorter Catechism again, and are, is there anyone who wants or needs a copy, a hard copy today? Anybody? There, it's yours if you'd like one. Any copy? Anybody? Okay. Oh, all right. Well, I won't. Here, I'll throw one. Catch and then pass it to Julia behind you. Good job. I won't throw it to Julia with the baby in her lap. Um, anybody else to look on? All right. Um, we are working through the Shorter Catechism, this great document. It is um, something that would highly encourage you to spend time with on your own um, in even personal devotions and study um, to memorize even. I hope you have seen the riches in this document as we go through it. Um, it has stood the test of time, uh, deeply biblical and rich with truth, and go through and memorize the first 38. It's a great place to start. Um, and then we can, um, <laughs> well, well, I will say Pastor Wright, when he was in seminary, so we, we think this is a lot, right? Uh, the Shorter Catechism in seminary, he memorized the entire larger catechism, which is unbelievable uh, to do. It is, the bulk of this book is the larger catechism. Um, and so he memorized that. So we have no excuse to not memorize at least part of the Shorter Catechism. <laughs> You have the numbers memorized. Hey, good for you. Good for you. It's a good start. <laughs> um, and so we, uh, just, just a big picture reminder where we are. It started, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And then it speaks of how do we know what this is? How do we know how to glorify God? And it's God's word. What does God's word teach? God's word teaches, this is question three, what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So those, those are the two big divisions, what we believe about God and then what God requires of man. We've been, question four through 39 is what we believe concerning God. Who is God? What is man? What is sin? What is salvation? Who is Jesus? What did he do? What is salvation? We're still on that last piece. What is salvation? And we'll, we'll unpack that in a minute. And then starting question 40 is uh, what duties uh, does, God, does God require of man? Um, and so, or question 39 is where that begins. So uh, really what four through 38 is what do we believe about God? And these are some wonderful, glorious questions that we've been working through. And we come to this one, uh, what benefits do we, be, do we receive from Christ at death we come to this not isolated, just as if, oh, here out of nowhere come these benefits you get from Christ. But this is in the context of what we call the ordo salutis, the ordo salutis, the Latin for the order of salvation. And we'll walk through this in a minute, but the ordo salutis is a logical order of how salvation is applied to us, kind of logically what happens. And um, as we've said, it's not necessarily uh, it's, it's not necessarily a temporal order that this happens and then this happens and this happens. Most of this happens instantaneously altogether in one package. But logically, we're separating them out because the order is important to see the grace of God, the glory of God, um, his kindness to us. 
But the Ordo Salutis is grounded in the work of Christ. And so the work of Christ came first, the Historia Salutis, the history of salvation. This came before, this is why we spent several weeks looking at Christ, his, his uh, work as prophet and priest and king, what this means. And so we have Christ in history coming to us. And then what does this mean for us individuals? What does this mean for people? We come to the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation for individuals. And so the big picture, I put this up here several times. Um, if you have critiques or concerns or problems, let me know. I can revise it as we go forward. But these are the main pieces of the Ordo Salutis as our catechism unpacks it. Uh, we begin with election in eternity past. Before, um, before the creation of the world, God elected a people that he would save. And, and then the next three pieces really temporally are instantaneous, but it follows a logical progression. It begins with an effectual call, uh, an outward call. Now this one, this outward call, um, is the preaching of the gospel. And one might sit under the preaching of the gospel for a very long time before it's made effectual with this inward call, what we call regeneration where we're inwardly made new by the Holy Spirit. So that um, the new birth, uh, being born again, that's what this is. We're being given a new heart by God, by the Holy Spirit. And so this effectual calling, even though this outward calling happens all times, all places, for all people, you may have heard it for a long time until finally God does prick and change your heart to regenerate it, make it new, so that then you can trust in Christ. So having new hearts, then we trust Christ. And that's called conversion, when we look to Christ and repent of our sins. And in faith, we are given union with Christ. We are united to Christ. And so all that he did in the Historia Salutis now becomes ours. All the salvation that he accomplished is ours. And again, we'll say regeneration along with faith and union with Christ, these things all happen at the same moment in time. And all Christ did is ours. And so we have the benefits of this effectual calling. Um, really, the benefits of union with Christ um, are these several things that we've been looking at. Justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, these other benefits that accompany or flow from these. And then we have glorification. And that's what we're looking at this week and next week, is this the benefit um, of our union with Christ by virtue of being united to Christ, we have promise of salvation after death, glorification. And so that's, that's where we are. If you're just wanting to, to set us in the big picture, we're talking about what do we receive after death? It's we receive from Christ, being united to Christ. By his grace, we receive these benefits. Um, I'll pause there. Uh, this, this is hope intended to be a review, but I know it's a lot I just gave you. Um, anything, questions there, concerns? All right, so let's go to question 37 and we'll read it um, and, and dive in. Question 37, you have there, you can pull it up on your phone or, or elsewhere. It's a Google search away. Um, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory and their bodies still being still united to Christ do rest in their graves till the resurrection. This is one of my favorite questions of them all. It's one, if I ever happen to do a funeral for you or a graveside service for you, this will be quoted, I guarantee it. Um, this is one that I think provides us incredible hope. Um, and so this is, as I mentioned, glorification, the phase one. 
phase one, and we'll look at the phase two next time of glorification. So a couple uh, concepts, right? Part, parts of this question we're going to work through, um, as I call it, key concepts here. We're going to first begin with a presupposition, uh, two presuppositions of the question. And first is this human nature consisting of soul and body. So we come to this question understanding our, us being a human consists in our physical bodies, but also our soul as well. Um, we call this theologically a dichotomy, um, two pieces um, together that make our human nature. Our human nature isn't truly human nature if we don't have our soul. We don't have true human nature if we don't have a body. Both of these two things compose human nature. And it's important here to note, there's no subordination of the body to the soul. So it's not like our soul is our pure being and then our body is our corrupt um, uh, piece of us and our soul is just trying to be set free from this bondage, this prison of our body. Nothing like that. In the fall, both our body and our souls were fallen. They're now fallen. Um, and our whole being is seeking redemption that comes in Christ, both body and soul. So this is one of the key uh, presuppositions because it's going to say our, this happens to our soul and this happens to our body. And this is, um, so one of the, these, pre, um, uh, these presuppositions of the question. So we'll pause there um, for questions or comments. Okay, we're all good. We're all good dichotomists, body and soul. Very good. So second, um, the second presupposition is the certainty of death. Um, and actually, the larger catechism, um, and Pastor Wright can quote it for us, actually asks if we're all going to die. Um, and so it asks this very question, is it, are we sure that we're going to die? And the answer is, well, yes, unless Christ comes back first. And so there, the certainty of death is a presupposition here. And of course, it's one um, that severely, and uh, severely, I don't mean that in a negative sense, but it, it impacts our lives. We live our lives in the shadow of the fact that death is coming. Our lives now are lived knowing death is in the future. Um, Hebrews 9, 27 tells us it is appointed for man to die once. Psalm 89, 48, what man can live and never see death? The poetic rhetorical question that's asked. Who can live and never see death? That's what our world is, is aiming for, right? To not die. But we must come to terms with the fact we will die. We are um, mortal bodies. Our bodies will die because of sin. My, my little thing broke here. Okay, got it. Click it back. Um, and so I, one of the things we need to do as, as Christians, as human beings more generally, is face the certainty of death, face the rea reality of death, come to terms with the fact that I am going to die. We keep death at a distance. There's a whole industry out there that keeps death at a distance from us. Where do you die? We go off to the hospice house to die. Love hospice. I'm very thankful for their work. We go off to hospice die. We go off to the hospital to die. We don't die at home. We don't see death. We don't see people dying. And then when they die, they're whisked away. Somebody else takes care of um, uh, taking care of the body, um, preserving the body, um, embalming the body, preparing the body for burial. 
We don't do any of that. We don't know that what that process looks like. Whereas 100 years ago, that was every person's job. That was what we all did. We all saw death. We touched death. But now it's just whisked away and it's not for, some, for us to see anymore. And cemeteries moved from being in the churchyard where we would walk past the dead every week on our way to worship. Then they were moved to the outskirts of town. We don't want them to be in our way. We don't want to have to walk through cemeteries any longer. And so this death has been pushed to the outskirts. We don't like to think of ourselves as mortal beings, but our bodies are, and we need to face this mortality. And I'll put in a plug, I haven't read it, um, but I hear it's been wonderful. The women's study right now is going through the book of Ecclesiastes, a study of the book of Ecclesiastes, going through these exact things. We are mortal people. So I need to read this book uh, that y'all are going through. Now, what's it called again? Living Life Backwards. Living Life Backwards by Gibson. Is that right? Yes. Gibson. Okay. By Gibson. Yeah. Um, so that's that's uh, that's a song I you know it's it's singing the same tune I like to sing. Um, but of course, death does not have the final victory for the Christian. And in death, we grieve, but we grieve as those who have hope. We do not grieve as those who do not have hope. And death does not have the final victory and its sting is removed. So there's certain, but as we see here, it's not final. It doesn't have the final say. So let's look at um, the positive things that this question, um, this answer tells us. And first is what happens to our souls at death. So death is coming. You are body and soul. What happens to your soul when you die? It says the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. So there's, there's two parts here, made holy, made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And so our, our souls immediately are made perfect in holiness. Our souls no longer struggle with sin. Our souls are then set free from the bondage ultimately to sin. It's the culmination of our justification and sanctification is this glorification of our souls. Not that, they're, not that they're being worshiped and glorified, but they are in glory now. Our souls are perfect. They're holy. They never will sin again. They're unable to sin at this point in time. It's a wonderful, glorious things, thing. Um, I love Hebrews 12, verses 22 to 24, uh, speaking of Christian worship and who we're worshiping with. Um, the writer of, the, of this letter says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So in, in worship, you're coming to the city of the living God, to, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all. So in worship, we're in front of all these people, all these, these people and beings are there and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So in worship, it's the spirits or the souls of the righteous are made perfect. They join in the heavenly chorus of worship even now. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to be, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So in worship, this is an incredible thing. The blood or the, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. They're made perfect here right now upon death the spirits of those who are in Christ are made perfect in holiness and enjoy this passing into glory. So that's the next part. They're made perfect and they pass into glory. That's why I call glorification. Passing into glory, into glory, the, um, into heaven itself. 
Um, and we see this in Luke 23, 43. Jesus says to the thief on the cross who's beside him, who's dying, who trusts in Christ, he says, uh, today, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, upon death, you will be with me in paradise, in glory, in heaven, in the presence of God, worshiping, praising him. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So he knows when, when he's away from the body, when his spirit is away from his dead body, when his body dies, his spirit is with the Lord in a way that it's not with the Lord now, although the Lord is with us. There's a closer communion we will have with God as our, as our souls are in glory. And um, I've said this several times, and, uh, but I want to bring it up again. Um, and this is what theologians call the beatific vision, where we will see this blessed vision, this blessed sight of the visio dei, the vision of God. We will see God, um, and 1 John 3 says it this way, we know that when he appears, it's actually not even speaking of Christ, speaking of God the Father, there's an appearance of God the Father. We shall be like him because we will see him as he is. So our souls, now they won't have physical eyes. They don't have physical ears, but they will see and they will hear in some way. I don't know what that means exactly, but our souls will see God. It will perceive God, will understand God, our closeness, our nearness to him. And we will be made like him. Not that we're made gods or made perfect. We will be changed. We will be able to behold his glory in a way we can't comprehend now. And this is a wonderful thing. This is what we were made for. This is a perfect existence, as the catechism says. We are made perfect in holiness, but we're still waiting for the full redemption of our bodies. But there's still a yearning and a waiting for our souls and bodies to be reunited, which will come next week. We look at the second phase. It's not happening today. But they're still yearning. Even though they're made perfect in holiness, this is not um, the sense of everything is finally done. Um, some will call this the intermediate state. Knowing it's not the final state. It's the intermediate awaiting Christ's return, waiting for the resurrection of the bodies, of our body, and then our bodies to be reunited to, their, to our souls. And so it's a glorious existence, but there's still something slightly unsettled about it. We're waiting for the return of Christ. Um, and I will say, uh, the Shorter Catechism doesn't say this, but the Confession does. Um, I can't remember if the Larger Catechism says this or not. Um, but the souls of unbelievers do immediately go into hell and are cast into hell for judgment. So their souls, and the way our souls will experience the blessedness of God's presence, uh, the souls of unbelievers immediately will uh, experience the judgment of God's presence, the judgment of hell itself. Um, and there is no place other than heaven or hell that our souls will go. There's no um, uh, purgatory. There's no limbo. There's no um, middle ground. It is either heaven or hell. Um, so that's worth pointing out. We'll, we'll pause here. We'll come to our bodies in a moment, but we'll pause here and um, for questions, comments. Yeah. Is there some sort of sense of time in eternity? Because it's hard to Yes, yeah. Right, no, I, I think there absolutely will be time um, for creatures in eternity. We are, um, we can only exist in time. 
And there is, we see in Revelation, um, the souls of the martyrs are under the, the uh, altar in heaven, whatever this means. They're crying out, how long, O Lord? So they're, they're, they're waiting. They're, there's a, a yearning and, and a, uh, being bound by time. Yes, so um, we are bound even, even for eternity once, um, once our bodies and souls are reunited, new heavens, new earth, uh, cr- the new creation, um, we are still bound by time. It's not that we're going to go outside of time the way God is, but there will always be time for us um, in perpetuity forever. Is that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hebrews 12, verses 22 to 24. What else? Yeah, is there a parallel between that? Um, purgatory is, theologically speaking, a place to go for the purgation of your sins, to purge the remaining sins from you. So it's not a place of just waiting. It's a place where you're receiving judgment to purify you enough to go into heaven. Um, I don't know all the details of the Roman Catholic doctrine. Um, I do know there's some um, uh, Old Testament, or not Old Testament, apocryphal writings that they use to um, find a basis for it. Um, but I, I don't think there's much connection between them. And then there's, there's also uh, ideas that developed in, in the Old Testament. What, did the, what happened to believers in the Old Testament before Christ came? Did the believers, did they go to a limbo kind of a place waiting for Christ to come and did Christ set them free to go to heaven and all, and all kinds of uh, questions there? I would say this statement is true. Believers under Old and New Covenants. Um, they are all immediately with, with the Lord upon their death. Um, but I don't know the intersection of all those ideas. Somebody else wants to speak to that. Feel free. They take it from seven books that are not accepted by Scripture. Right. Right. That's right. Maccabees. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. This is, for the Christian, one of those great hopes Again, not hopes as wishful thinking, or, uh, but hope is a confident expectation. It's one of those great hopes that we build our life on, right? Death is not the end. And in death, something we will experience something greater than we can ever imagine now. We will be with God himself. We will be with Jesus Christ, right? Jesus says, you will be with me today in paradise. We will be with our Savior. And this is such a good, such good news, such a comforting truth for us. And it enables us to persevere here and now. So let's, let's look at the bodies. So what happens to the souls uh, we just looked at? And the catechism says, though, their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. So the bodies rest in the graves until the resurrection. So the bodies do go and wait. Uh, we see in John 5, Jesus says, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Speaking of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So they are waiting in their graves now. Our physical bodies are waiting. They are in the graves. They are dead. Um, and, and so they're just waiting. Um, And historically, Christians have treated dead bodies with this anticipation in mind. 
They've treated dead bodies in such a way as to prepare them, not as if like they're actually preparing them for the resurrection, but to treat them with dignity that is deserved of bodies that are awaiting resurrection and place them um, or, and treat them in such a way that gives them honor and dignity that is still due to human bodies, even though they are dead. And the last point dovetails with this. Um, but there's a perpetual union of the soul and the body with Christ. This union with Christ that we talked about earlier in the Order of Salutis, this union with Christ is not severed based upon death. And we intuit that with our souls, right? Um, our souls are not, uh, they're still united to Christ. That's why we go to heaven. That's why they're made perfect in, holy, in, in, in holiness. That's why they immediately pass into glory. Um, because they're united to Christ, right? This is the benefit of salvation. But we don't often think about the physical body as our catechism so clearly says, our physical bodies are still united to Christ. I think this is one of the most um, uh, jarring statements in the catechism, right? Their bodies being still united to Christ. Even though they're dead, our bodies are still united to Christ, this is an amazing thing. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 is one place we can look to this, uh, look for scriptural evidence of this. Uh, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, ar archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ, the dead still being united to Christ, will rise first. So our dead bodies, though they still lie in the grave, are still united to Jesus Christ. That's an amazing thing because our bodies are not just cast off and then treated as something to be simply disposed of. They're united to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Gretchen. Right, yes. Yes, good question. So um, we've talked about this in the past, I, I believe. Um, so the question of, of, um, of burial versus cremation of bodies, right? So two, two pieces of this. One is theologically, um, what we're saying is that the body that is dead um, will be resurrected. Now, what does that exactly mean? I don't know, because people who died, you know, 2,000 years ago, their bodies are as good as cremated in the ground, right? Like they're now in the ground and now trees have planted roots and now they're, now they're you know, the cells are now on leaves and, you know, whatever. So uh, it's just, what does it mean that the body is in the grave? I don't know. Um, the Jewish custom and tradition, and, and I don't know exactly how far back this goes, but at least in the first century, um, the Jewish tradition was you would be buried in a tomb for a period of time, again, I don't know how long, if it's six months, a year, six years, I don't know, um, enough time for your, for your skin to decay um, and the tissue to decay. And then they would go back and uh, get your, uh, your bones and put them in an, an ossuary, is that right? Um, and they would bury those in, in the ground. So you'd bury the bones while af after all the flesh rotted and decayed there in the tomb. And then the tomb would be reused. And that's why there's the point made about um, Jesus was, was buried in a tomb that was unused. Uh, it was the, he was the first one to be placed there. And you see in Psalm 16, uh, David has a wonderful prayer, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And I think what he's 
I think the fulfillment of that is shown in the fact that, yes, Jesus was buried, but he didn't see corruption. His body didn't see corruption. His flesh didn't decompose and, and die in this way, and then his, his bones were later buried. No, he rose, rose again on the third day. So his body didn't see corruption in this way that, that was common in the Jewish mind. Um, so theologically, taking a step back, you know, or maybe this isn't a theological point. Maybe this is more the, the physical, scientific point. Um, what, what's going on is our bodies decay, and what happens to the cells when they decay and all the matter? And I don't know. I don't quite understand uh, what that means then on, on the last day. Are those exact same cells somewhere in the universe brought together to make your new cells that are you uh, on the resurrection? I don't know. Um, people were, you know, when people die at sea, they're, they're you know, buried at sea. They're just put in the sea and then they, they sink and they go to the bottom and their, you know, bodies decompose quicker than ours in the ground. Um, what happens to them? Well, they're raised in the same way. And I think even scripture alludes to the fact that, you know, being raised from the sea as well. So that's happening, even though the bodies are physically falling apart and physically are not um, um, uh, noticeable or, or physically recognizable. So our bodies will rise again, even if we're in the ground, even if we're decomposed completely and fully. But the theological point, so that was the, I was wrong, that was the physical point. The theological point, though, is how do we want to treat dead bodies in anticipation of the resurrection. And I don't think I can say there's the biblical right way, you must do this. But I do think that the Christian tradition has always been to bury their dead in anticipation of the resurrection. And uh, in, in such a way, not, not, to, uh, not to, to be overly, um, um, uh, what's the word? Um, yeah, not to be. Yeah, I don't want to be dogmatic about it. This is not just some. This is not some kind of like magical thing that's happening. But it's to respect the body, um, and to prepare for Christ's return, and to say this is the very body that's going to return. Uh, often people will say, "My grandmother died. I went to see her body, but you know, I just knew it wasn't her. You know, I saw the body. I just knew it wasn't her. It's not her." People say, "Yes, that's not her. Her spirit's gone. It's not her." Well, no, that's her. That's grandma. That's her body. It's dead, but that's grandma. That really is. Um, or grandpa, sorry. Um, that's, that's, the, that's the dead person. That is them. Their body is dead. We must affirm that. That is them, and that is the same body that will rise again on the final day. And so we must, you know, that's kind of a Gnostic idea. So let's not say that. Let's not say, oh, that's, that's no longer, you know, Aunt Sally or whatever. Um, this, no, that is Aunt Sally. She's dead, but she will rise again. Praise God. Okay, I've just rambled for a while. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you will be beautiful as you are today. <laughs> right. What are, okay, so what are we going to be when we, when we, in the resurrection? Are we going to be the perfect 28-year-old version of ourselves, right? I don't know. Um, and, and we think also of, of children's, children who uh, die in the womb. Um, children who are stillborn, right? Those, those elect infants dying uh, in their infancy, what will they be like, right? Are they gonna be infants forever? Well, probably not, I don't think so, but I have no idea. I have no idea what that means. Right, yeah, in the Old Testament, yeah, we're talking about this this week in our family. Methuselah was like 900, what, 986, is that right? What's that? 969, okay, 969, right? Um, yeah, like, that's crazy. What does that mean? Like, is he going to be 900 in perpetuity? I don't know. Um, so I have no idea what that means. Um, but it's going to be glorious and far better than we can imagine now. So we'll leave it at that. Leave it at that. Um, 
Right. So Elijah went up to heaven in his body, right? Right. And then Moses died. So was one in body form? <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah. Um, great question. So did y'all catch that? The uh, transfiguration, um, Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is transfigured, um, and Elijah and Moses are there. Elijah, remember, he never died bodily. He was just taken up into heaven. I'm not going to explain it because I don't know what that means. Um, but Moses died bodily. And so the question is, okay, was Elijah really there bodily and Moses just like appeared to be there bodily? Um, I don't know. Right, with the, the witch of Endor, um, Samuel is speaking. Uh, she conjures him. Right, is that really Samuel? Is that Samuel bodily? Is that, you know, all kinds of questions I'm not going to touch. Rob? That's right. So, what's Yeah, so that was fascinating. And when Jesus died, um, where do we see this? Is this Luke, I believe? Um, where we have like the tombs open and a bunch of dead people rise from the dead at this point in time. What in the world is going on? And it's almost like there was this, um, we, but the Bible doesn't explain this. It just says it. Uh, and so how do we connect the dots theologically? You know, there's, there's lots of, of, of proposals out there. But it seems to me what's going on, this is such a demonstration of God's power in space and time. It's almost like there's all this excess power. We're just going to raise some people while we're at it, right? It's like God is here. God is at work in this time space right here in such a profound and incredible way. Like we've got to raise some people from the dead as well to demonstrate this is God working. I don't know. I, and maybe that was a terrible, crazy explanation. Pastor Wright, you know, can, can chide me later. Um, but, um, but it's just this demonstration of this is God's work. There's no other explanation for it. Um, but all those people, they died again, right? Lazarus rose from the dead and he still died again. So there's the exception um, to, to we only die once. They all died twice because they got to rise from the dead. Um, but, but they still died and they're still now resting in their grave, their bodies are, until Christ's resurrection. Until Christ, or until, excuse me, no, Christ rose from the dead. <laughs> until Christ returns. Sorry. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah, very good. Um, the statement was that this happened, this rising from the dead of all these seemingly random people uh, upon Christ's death. This is, this is to demonstrate that, that Christ's death and subsequent, subsequent resur- resurrection, he's not just another guy. This is, this is the son of God. This is Jesus Christ, God incarnate. And so it's indicating something different is happening here. Jesus is not just another man. Is that right? Is that, yeah, what I'm capturing you say? Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Melissa. Do you see a few instances after Jesus rose from the dead of them, of people like not recognizing him right away? Mm-hmm. Do you think that he looked enough to know who he was hiding right. who he was until he wanted them to recognize him? Right. So did you all hear the question? It was, uh, after Christ's resurrection, there's several stories where he's not immediately recognized. You, know, you think of Mary at the tomb. Uh, you think of the, the road to Aramaeus, um, the walking with the guys for some period of time, and they don't recognize who it is. 
um, until he breaks bread with them. Pretty, pretty neat. Um, so did Jesus look different enough after the resurrection where people didn't quite connect the dots immediately or was he trying to hide himself from them? Um, I, I'm gonna say, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not gonna answer that. I don't know. I haven't thought about it. Pastor right? you wanna? Very same body in which he suffered. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right, and, and yeah, there, there's so much to say there. Um, but I, I, it's not that his body was in any way radically different um, from, from his other body. Right still, right, still has the scars. You know, someone, I've heard someone say, maybe Derek Thomas say, the only scars that will be in heaven are the scars on Jesus' hands, right? Because the rest of our bodies will be made perfect and all the, the wounds will be healed. Um, but we will have the scars on Jesus' hands. You know, an amazing, amazing thing. Um, but yeah, he still he had the scars, but you know, how, how do they not see him? Was, it, was there a physical difference? I don't know. Um, it can't be that much, though. So many present-day authors have sensationalized after-death experiences right. and near-death experiences. Right. So for those who were resurrected, those believers, were they glorified and then... Unglorified, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. So, did these people die and their souls go to heaven? And then, when they were resurrected, it's like, oh no, get back down there. Your body's got a few more years. You know, get out of heaven. Um, what happened? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I would think that probably makes the most sense. And we do even have um, um, Paul speaking of this. Almost, it seems like almost heavenly vision. Like he was, he says, I was caught up in the third heaven. It almost seems like his soul was experiencing what this would be like. I don't know, was this a death-like experience or was this some other vision God gave him? I don't know, but I, I, don't, think, um, I don't think it would be wrong to say they had an experience of God in heaven in their, in their soul um, and then their soul came back to their resurrected body for a time. I, if that's the case, I don't think it's wrong to say that, which seems to be probably what happened. If that's the case, what's fascinating, though, is we don't have stories of people in the first century telling about their after-death experiences, right? And I think they probably had them. What I think that's a testimony to is the fact that they were more concerned about the story of Christ, the testimony of Christ being told, not the testimony of their own experience, but it was about Christ who is the one who would then give us this blessed vision of Christ, of, of, of God. It is Christ who would raise our dead bodies. And so they were more concerned about promoting Christ than they were about promoting their own story. So I will be highly, highly, highly skeptical of anybody who dies and wants to make a buck by selling a book about it. I'll be highly skeptical of that because that's not what it's all about. The, the, the glory for all that goes to Christ. And if they put their every moment of their life from then on out to declaring Christ, praise God, that's what that should do. It should not lead us to try to, try to you know, build an empire around it. Okay, there's my rant for the day. Yeah, um, Paul was stoned. That's right. That's right, yeah, that's right. He had many near-death experiences. Um, and maybe they were death experiences. I, I don't know. Um, all right. Well, I think I'm actually come to the end of my notes, and we still have like four minutes. I was yeah. just thinking about how Lazarus is a perfect example. That's right. That's right. And you don't see the Bible discussing his experience. Right, exactly. But they didn't want to kill him, and they too. It's because he was a focus on Christ, and it was a testament to the power of Christ when he was dead. 
Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Well, well said. Yep. I agree. Lazarus is a great example. Yes. Yes. That's right. So we don't know everything. We can't put God in a box mm-hmm. and know everything about him. Right. That's exactly. Exactly. And that was John, one of John Calvin's reportedly favorite verses, right? Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but those things that are revealed, how does it go? Belong to us and our sons, right? Um, God has revealed enough for us to know, and we're pushing against the boundaries of those things he's revealed, and we ought not be speculative, and we ought not major in some of these issues, um, but we major in that which the catechism clearly tells us from Scripture. Our bodies will be made, will be made perfect in holiness, or our souls will be made perfect in holiness, will immediately pass into glory, and our bodies will rest and wait for Christ to return. That's what we can sit on. And all these other questions are, are good, important, fun to think about. But let's major on the majors. I have a question about the answer. Yeah. Have you been comprehending what it means to be in the kingdom of God? Right, right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right to highlight, you know, the way we even think and understand and perceive the world is so uh, marred by sin now. What does it even mean to be perfect in holiness? I mean, I have an idea what that might mean, but yeah, it's going to be an incredible thing once we experience it. Um, and it will, it will um, radically change our understanding of reality because it is so marred right now and we are so selfish right now. Um, I, I think that's a great point, really good point. I think of the uh, legitimate and provisional that all, just thinking about that, all of our activities will come to an end. Mm-hmm. And just kind of keeping that in mind. That's right. Money comes to an end. All, uh, all of our achievements, Rome came to an end. Right. All these things came to an end. That's one of the key things that I think about when I think about death. And that these are legitimate things, but that, again, human beauty, even, what will you even think of any of these? creation now mm-hmm. that's right that's right yes a reminder that we are finite and and this creation marred by sin is finite and it will be remade one day made new and the new heavens and new earth will be where righteousness dwells all right final comment here really oh one more. Yeah, with the time in eternity i'm still thinking about that um, yeah Right. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and the question of there's no more night, um, to, what, to what degree is that? Maybe I'm stepping in dangerous waters here. To what degree is that um, literal? What, what degree is that like a poetic language? I, I don't know. Um, but the point is that it will be this perpetual, glorious existence in God's presence. Um, and how do we mark time? That's a great question. I don't know. I don't know. Probably not by solar days because, well, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I'll stop there. <laughs> okay, final, final comment. The, the saints who are saying, how long must we wait? Yes. So is there some uneasiness up there? I think so. So it's not, we may be holy, but we're not experiencing... That's right. The complete final rest. The complete final 
thing that we were created for, it's not there. And there is that sense of yearning and expectation as well. Uh, not a sense of lack, but a sense of this is not exactly how it should be. And so we'll live in that tension, and next week we'll see it all come to fruition in the second phase of glorification. They're looking for the justice of God, too, right? That's right, yeah. They're looking for God's justice and glory. That's right. It's not there, I'm upset, right. I hate where I am. It's God, when will you be glorified ultimately and conquer all of this evil? That's right, because they're, they're the martyrs, and when will our blood be avenged is what they're saying. Right, so yeah, absolutely, great, great point. Um, the justice is there as well. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this amazing promise that gives us such hope in this life um, in a world that is full of um, no hope. We cling to these things that in Christ, we will experience the glory of your presence. We thank you for these things and may you strengthen us to live a life that honors you in light of it. May you be glorified in us. Now we thank you that we can worship you in spirit and in truth. And so enable us and equip us for this coming hour that you would be pleased to grow us as we seek to glorify your name. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Go in peace. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.